Hey, go ahead and have a seat, church. He's the one that gives us the breath in our lungs to say the next word that we're going to speak. He's the one that gives us our next breath so that we can have life. And he's the one that we cry out, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And I know this, the day he comes, the day we enter into his physical presence is going to be like unlike any other day. It's not going to be standing on the 25-yard line of a football field waiting for the kickoff or sitting in the stands to watch your team. It's not going to be like your wedding day. It's going to be something so completely out of this world, transcendent experience as we stand face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I mean it when I say, come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly. How about you? Right on. Well, hey, I'm so glad you're here today. And uh, I wonder why you're here. I wonder why you're here. Listen to this. Um, the Gallup Research Group did a poll. They polled the, church, the North American church, um, asking them the simple question, why do you go to church? And this, they asked the question of those who make, who call church, um, a church their church home because they attend once a month. So that was the, like, that was the very low bar they said. If you come once a month, then they consider you to be a regular attender of a church. And, and the, the answers that were provided, the reasons why they come to church aren't that staggering, but that there was no unification in what was said is what was so surprising to me. So 23% of those polled said that they come for spiritual growth and guidance. Why are you here today? Why do you make church a priority in your life? Involvement in the lives and fellowship with others in a church body. Why are you here? 23% say it's for spiritual growth and guidance. 20% keeps me grounded, keeps me inspired. 15% say it's my faith. 15% to worship God. 13% say they come to fellowship with others for the community. 12%, did you hear this? 23, 20, 15, 15, 13, 12, 12. There's no real driving force that these people are speaking to that brings them into fellowship with other believers on, an, on a regular basis. And that's kind of disturbing to me. I wonder why you're here. And this is a, um, this is a, this is a pastor's conviction, a personal conviction. Let me ask. I want you to be thinking, how many of you have been in church for more than five years? More than five years. Almost every hand in here is going to go up. Now, the next question is, how many of you have, don't even remember not being involved in the life of the church? That's me. My entire life, I don't remember when my parents started taking me to church. I only remember, I remember the nursery I was in. I remember Sunday school teachers. I remember perfect attendance, which meant, which meant you could miss two Sundays a year. I remember youth group. I remember, yeah, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? If you could prove that you were in church 50 times a year, you got perfect attendance that year. I remember youth group. I remember youth retreats. I remember small group ministry. I mean, I remember Sunday school classes and teaching and sermons and cantatas. And the list goes on and on. For 49 years of my life, 
And I've been a pastor for 11 years. And this becomes a growing concern to me for myself personally and for the life of this church. Why do we do what we do? Why are we even here? Have we lost a grasp of the understanding of why we gather as a fellowship of believers, why we make it a priority? That's my concern. What would happen? What would happen if this was all washed away? And nothing was left but us and some folding chairs sitting in a parking lot. Would we still be able to proclaim the reason why we gather to fellowship? I would, I would be curious to poll the church to see if the percentages run the same all the way across like the Gallup poll did. Not unified in an understanding why they come together. Well, you know the mission of our church is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That drives us. It would be my hope that if you were asked, why do you do this? It's because this is what we want to do. We want to see Jesus Christ made much of, so much in our church, that people are being moved to discipleship, to giving their lives in relationship to the Lord and growing in them. And that we would be lifting high the name of Jesus in worship because we're so passionately moved by the relationship that we share with Jesus Christ. That we can't help but become a spring of living water flowing out into the lives of those we come in contact with. I would hope that we would all be able to proclaim those things and and speak to those reasons why we come and make fellowship together in this church a priority. I pray personally that Jesus would stir and move and stir our affections and our love for him so much that anything else would pale in comparison to our burning and passionate relationship that we share with Jesus Christ and each other. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22 says this, and this is going to be a theme for the next three months. It says this, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Man, isn't that an awesome thought that we together, church, would be be built up in such a way that Jesus Christ would make this his home. To become a house that is being built together, a place where our Creator God can dwell by his Spirit. And as that happens, we need to make sure, church, we understand why we're here and why we do what we do. We have to make sure our spiritual priorities are in line. And so we're going to be spending some time in the book of Ephesians um, that Jasper just spoke um, in regard to. But before we get to the book of Ephesians, I, I think we have a few lessons that we need to learn from the church 40 years after its inception. And so next week we're going to start through the book of Ephesians, but today we're going to start in A.D. 95 when John, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, found himself on the island of Patmos, sent there into exile because of his relationship with Jesus, and he was swept away in the Spirit and, and, and placed before Jesus, and Jesus said to him, hey, I want you to write these things down. But here's the timeline. 
The church of Ephesus was founded in AD, somewhere in the middle, AD 50s, AD 53 to AD 56. In, in AD 62, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians, and the, and the purpose of that letter was to communicate two very clear, clear messages, and, that's, and this is it. These are them. To show and to share that Jesus Christ has reconciled all of creation unto himself. He has made a way for us sinners, sinful people, to be in relationship with him. He's made a way for us. And also to declare that, hey, church, I want you all to be built up together underneath me. And I want you to become a mighty force toward each other and to those who are watching on the outside. Some 40 years have passed since the church began to the writing of the letter that we're going to find in Revelation chapter 2. Our desire is this, that our church, the leadership of this church, the desire is that we would be built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And this cannot happen if our love is misplaced. Why are you here, church? This cannot happen if our love is misplaced. If our love priorities are out of whack, then so will we be. And so here's the question. I want you to keep this in the forefront of your mind as we walk through the, this passage for the next 10, 15 minutes. And it's this, where's the love? Where is your love? If you dig deep into the, into the furthest recesses of your heart, where is your love? Think in terms of church ministry. Has that become your love? Experiencing what you experience here? Or has your deep, meaningful, passionate, vigorous, ever-growing relationship with the Lord been your love? Where's your love? Where's your affection? Do you even love and love the right things? And so let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the one that gives us your word. You are the one that speaks. You are the one, Lord, that draws us into relationship with you by the might and the power and the work of your Holy Spirit as you work in and among us. And I would pray now, Lord, that you would stand between myself and our church. Lord, I pray that they would hear your words and not mine, that they would see your face and not mine. Lord, penetrate each heart, meet each heart where it is, and I pray that your word that you say is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword would pierce each heart, meeting it where it is. Encouraging, the, encouraging those, Lord, who need encouragement, breaking through the hard heart and doing a mighty work in the life of this church today through the might and the power of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you will, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, um, beginning at verse 1. We're going to read this together. Here's the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. 
but I have this against you, Jesus says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, if I just stopped there, I'm wondering how that word. Say you're a member of the church of Ephesus. Let's just say that this letter is written to us. And it's just been read before you. What is your initial response to what Jesus has just said to us, his church? He starts out with a, with a flowery commendation. You're getting so much right, church. And then he comes with a rebuke. And he says, listen, you're doing all this great stuff. But you've abandoned your first love. How does that strike you? May this word of the Lord hit us. I pray that it would convict us and cut us to the spiritual core. Because unless we get this right, we're going to find ourselves lacking in effectiveness as we look to be a part of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Let me provide just a little bit of an explanation to verse 1. The church, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, in Ephesus, write the words of him. So the words of him, we know that's Jesus Christ. He is speaking. He has brought in the Spirit John and stood him before him. And he says, I want you to write these things down. So the words of him, Jesus is speaking, who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars represent the leadership of the church of Ephesus. And so the one who is speaking is saying, I hold the leaders of each of these seven churches, including Ephesus, in my hand. And they're in my hand, and this is what I'm doing with them. I'm providing them with vision and direction for your church, Ephesus. And I'm using them, and I'm guiding them in such a way to cause them to will and to work according to my good purpose. That's what the one, the words of him, Jesus is saying to the leadership of the church of Ephesus. And he's holding them in his right hand. And then he says, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches that you can read of in the second and third chapters of Revelation. The lampstands. And so envision this. You have seven lampstands. And you see the person of Jesus Christ, Christ walking among them, interacting with them, convicting them, encouraging them, testing them, loving them, pruning them. So that their light that he wants from them would shine more brightly into the community that, that the Lord has placed themselves in. That's the picture we see in verse 1. So there's a handful of lessons, I believe, before we enter into the book of Ephesians that, that God has for us in these few handful of verses. So let's look at verse 2. Here's the first lesson we can learn from the church of Ephesus. Jesus is pleased, church. He is pleased with what we do for the sake of his kingdom. I know your works and your toil, your patient endurance. I know you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested. I know you're enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. That's a great, great commendation 
commendation. Patient as they work and toil. Ministry, as you know, if you've involved yourself in it and you've heard Bjorn speak to it, is often exhausting both mentally and physically. Jesus is saying, way to go, you're working really hard. And with right doctrine, they look to protect what's being taught on the inside of the church, testing what is being taught to them, making sure it aligns with the right, the right doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And during persecution, bearing up for the sake of Christ and not growing weary, they endured the pressures that were coming from the outside of the church, protecting what was happening on the inside and keeping a watch out as they, are, as they experience pressure from the outside of the church. Persecution. I believe the Lord, when he looks at our church, Harvest Bible Chapel in West Olive, he sees a group of people determined to see ministry move forward. From parking lot greeters to door greeters to kids check-in to, to teaching in the children's ministry to leading small groups to serving communion to serving in the youth, and the list goes on and on. Knocking it out of the park with a kid's, what do we call it this summer, a family camp. That's what the Lord sees when he sees us. But here's the danger, that we, like the church of Ephesus, would become so consumed with the ministries of the church and what we're doing in the life of the church that we forget why we actually are doing what we're doing. Jesus loves He's pleased with what we're doing for the sake of his kingdom. But that brings us to the second lesson that we can learn from the church of Ephesus after its 40 years of ministry in that city. Jesus longs for a loving relationship with us. I can tell you what. You wipe away all the ministry we do. You wipe away this church building, and we're sitting here in folding chairs in the middle of a grassy field. Jesus is most pleased when we are on fire about our relationship with him, passionately pursuing our relationship with him, forsaking all else as we run toward him with all our might. He says in verse 4, to the church that you just commended for all of their hard work. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. How in the world do we ever get to a place where we abandon the love we had at first? Here's an even bigger question. Can you point to a time in your life, in your relationship with the Lord? Can you point to a time where it was real and vibrant and passionate? It was meaningful. And your relationship with Jesus Christ was so satisfying that the temptations of this world meant nothing to you. Can you point to a time in your life, in your relationship with the Lord, where that has been real and true? How does the thought of spending extended time reading the Bible strike you? What about extended periods of time in prayer? Seeking the face of Jesus, asking him to pour himself out on you. What does that sound like to you? How does the name of Jesus impact you when it's spoken? Are you struggling to see the love of Christ bring everlasting heart change in your life? Have you abandoned the Jesus that brought you into relationship with him? 
When you think about your love for Christ, I want you to think about this. When was the last time the love of Jesus Christ failed you? As he pours his love on it, out on you, how has it changed you? We know 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we know this, that Jesus' love that he pours out on us never, ever, ever fails. How has it changed you? When, and if it has, did the love of Jesus Christ stop to be captivating to you? And so, if it's true in your heart that you have forsaken your first love, the love of Jesus Christ as he brought you into relationship with him, he provides us with a way of getting back. He says, remember, remember, remember the times of vibrancy in your relationship with the Lord when you were first saved, or maybe since then, you've had seasons in your relationship with the Lord that were highly impactful. You felt the presence of Jesus. You knew he was changing, that he was stirring in you your love and affection for him. He says, remember these things and then repent. Hey, is your activity in the life of the church become your idol? Has that become what is most satisfying to you? I can tell you this, entering, leaving the business world and coming into ministry was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because I don't know how to respond other than to be results-driven. And in the business world, you'd be handed, at the end of every month, you'd be handed a sheet of paper to say, this is what you just did. When you come into ministry, when you do work in the life of the church, we don't have that privilege. We're not going to know the fruitfulness of our ministry until we get to heaven and we stand before Jesus. And you know what? Then it's not even going to matter because we're standing before Jesus. Has your activity in the church become your satisfaction? Has it, been your, has it become your approval? Is it your idol? Because Jesus says, no, repent of that. Repent of that. Return to me. Remember, remember, repent, and then act. What were the works that the church did at first that's spoken of in that verse? Hey, this is it. Simple and true. Love Christ and love others. Passionately pursue a deep, meaningful, vibrant relationship with the Lord and then love others as you experience the full love of Jesus Christ being poured out on you. How do you pursue relationship with him? How do you pursue relationship with Jesus Christ? This is what Hendrickson, um, a famous Bible commentator, says of the church of Ephesus that we see here. The fu- they function not as propagators of the faith, but as caretakers and custodians. They lost the fire they had for Jesus Christ, and instead of, instead of proclaiming, proclaiming it, they became faith hoarders. They didn't want to share it. Instead of being propagators, they became caretakers and custodians. J.D. Greer speaks of the dangers of what he calls church drift. And this is what church drift is. It's when, for 40 years, a church experiences ministry and loses sight of why they're doing what they're doing. The first drift is this, a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. That's a scary place for a church to be. When we become more concerned with what's happening to us instead of sharing the loss with those who are outside the church. The second drift is this. The drift from grace to law, from what God did 
to what I have to do in order to be, be approved. From what God did for me to what I have to do to be approved before him. And we all know when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, it has nothing to do. Our right standing before him, experiencing his love, has nothing to do with what we do. It has everything to do with what he did and continues to do for us. And this is the third drift. A church becomes focused on internal transformation. Or excuse me, it, it drifts from focus on internal transformation to external conformity. That we look right instead of that we are right before Jesus Christ. These three will destroy the forward momentum of any church. They will darken the light that Jesus Christ intends for us to be into the watching world. Jesus says, you shall love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the Gospel of Mark, he adds this when he gives the great command, which is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, that we would love Jesus Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is way more important than what we do in the life of our church. If that's out of order, so are we. Jesus is pleased with us, church, as we work hard for him. But he also longs to be in a loving relationship with us. Here's a third lesson we can learn. Jesus loves our commitment to purity. He absolutely does. He says this, Yet this I have, or this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He loves our commitment to purity. The Nicolaitans apparently were some very immoral people that, that loved to drag other people into their immorality. And the church of Ephesus said no. We're committed to purity. Jesus celebrates that with them, and I believe he celebrates that with us as well. Psalm 37, 4 to 6 says this, that we're to delight ourselves in the Lord, and he will give us the desires of our heart. He says, commit your ways to the Lord and trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Hey, listen, as we are committed to purity with our eyes fixed on the person of Jesus Christ and our delight in him, he's the one that makes our righteousness shine. Our light becomes so bright, and that's what he wants from us. Let's move a little more quickly now. Here's the fourth This is the final lesson we can learn from the church of Ephesus as it relates to the book of the Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Hey, listen, Jesus rewards those who pursue a loving relationship with him. He rewards us as we pursue a loving relationship with him. Yeah, he says, hey, listen, you're going to conquer as you pursue me. And that gives you the ability to enter into my eternal kingdom and taste the fruit that is hanging from the tree of life, which will give you eternal life. And in that, you get to experience life in my eternal kingdom that he calls paradise. But I'll tell you this, church, the victory is already won when we are in deep and true, meaningful relationship with the Lord. Hey, I'm glad that I get to eat of the tree of life. I'm glad that I get to spend eternity in a place called paradise that God is creating for each one of us right now who are in relationship with him. But I, I can't go there because I'm selfish. And that sounds like such a wonderful and an awesome and a fun place to be. What I want for myself and my desire for this church is that the victory is found 
in your relationship with Christ and that one day you're going to stand before him face to face and nothing else will matter. Yeah, we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven with all of the work we do here for the sake of Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom. But let's remember the one who conquers is the one who loves Jesus. And so, church, where's the love? Where is your love? Now listen, if you look at verse... If you look at the end of verse 5, he says, hey, hey, if you can't get this right, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you can't return to me, if you can't love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I'm going to remove your lampstand. So church, I ask, where is your love today? Imagine this. Imagine you're looking at a bank of lights at the top of a post in a football stadium, like the one you see before you. Now, when I envision what the lamppost that's being talked of in in, uh, chapter 2 in Revelation, I see a lamppost with a single light bulb on it. But let's let's suppose it's like this, that all of that is on top of our lamppost, and the lights, each one there represents a shining bulb of a heart of a person in the life of this church that has it right, a loving, deep, meaningful, passionate relationship with the Lord. You can see, you can see when those lights are lit. But here's what Jesus is saying. If they start winking out one by one because we lose focus on why we're doing what we're doing and who we're doing it for, as they wink out, The life of this church is not going to be doing what it's supposed to be doing for the sake of Jesus Christ and what he's called us to do. It's our desire that our bank of light stays lit and becomes highly impactful into the the lives of those that we come in contact with. So church, where is your love? Is your light winking out? Do you need to repent? Remember and repent and then return to that passionate, vibrant relationship you had with Jesus? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for completing us. And I pray that today, Lord, um, that your word, that your word would impact the lives of each one that has heard it today spoken. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would call us to repentance if we have lost our love in you and with you. And I pray that you would return us to it and all for your sake and your glory. Lord, please do not let the light of Harvest West Olive go out, but Lord, cause us to burn for your sake. And we pray this in Jesus' name.